Podcast. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Megan Cornwell. The Profile is brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine, the UK's leading Christian magazine. Today on the show, I'm talking to John Kirkby, the founder of the charity Christians Against Poverty. The story of how this organisation came into being is a fascinating one, which is closely tied to John's own personal story. John went from experiencing poverty himself huge amounts of debt and huge levels of stress, to creating services that help people in similar situations. He's just been awarded a CBE for all his work running CAP. I caught up with him to hear more about his story. So, John, you are a Yorkshireman. I am. Tell me about your childhood and home life and what was it, what it was like growing up. It was like uh, idyllic, really. Um, yeah, I was... Um, my mum described me as a pleasant surprise, so I came along 13 years after my two sisters, um, but there was absolutely no doubt. Um, I was the son my dad always wanted, I was loved, uh, my sisters left home pretty quickly, um, and I was kind of brought up in a yeah a very lovely, lovely home life. We weren't a wealthy family, um, but certainly ne- lacked nothing, um, and both my mum and my dad were very big influences particularly in my early life and then yeah it went downhill a little bit um after I was about nine or ten so my father yeah picked up a a virus an illness that kind of got really serious really quick he ended up uh ultimately became terminally ill um and the kind of idyllic sort of home life just began to unravel a little bit so my dad was in hospital months and months on end my mum spent day traveling to see him i yeah as i became a teenager i started to lose the plot a little bit um yeah i mean all it's that unusual but quite selfish despite what was going on around me struggled at school not great at school i left school at 16 with yeah a few o levels and began to yeah just began to struggle with a few things got introduced to alcohol too early um yeah not a particularly nice young guy really um i had outbreaks of sort of violent behavior yeah police yeah not great Mm -hmm. and whilst all the time my dad's dying so pretty grim so you were brought up a christian i understand but you had as you explained in your early teens you sort of started to wander away from god a little bit why do you think that was (laughs) yeah wander away from god that would be an understatement of the year um so yeah my mum took me to sunday school but at the moment she said you don't have to go aged yeah about 10 that was it so although i went there was no real for me anyway there's no real faith um my mum was a christian which was fantastic later on um and yeah just yeah, I, I just walked away from it, really. Um, I did have, it was really interesting, when I was about 14, um, at that time, yeah, in full flow, not very, not in a great place, me and my mates kind of went to watch a 16-rated film called Across the Switchblade in a church, and I've definitely a recollection of, yeah, being very moved by the story of this pastor, we all know the, the story, and there's definitely some move of God spirit in me at that age at 14 but within two or three weeks i went to a couple of bible studies and yeah i'm gone so very fleeting 
but definitely some engagement with, with, with faith, but certainly no evidence of it in any part of my life. And according to your book, in your early professional career, you yeah. started out by running several businesses. Yeah. And that was still before you had become a Christian. Yeah. What advice would you give young entrepreneurs who are okay. starting out? Yeah. Um, don't lose your entrepreneurial gift, but try and learn some wisdom as quick as you can, as fast as you can, because that's where I lacked. Um, so, yeah, I was entrepreneurial in terms of uh, career. So left at school at 16. Um, and, yeah, when I was 18, my father died. And then within a year, my mum was simply overwhelmed by the loss of her life partner she was um she spent time in a, in a hospital so i was kind of on my own my dad's dead my mum's not well um got a job as a door-to-door loan sales collector so that's my first job how ironic is that when you listen to what happened eventually so i used to literally do loans and collect debt collection um yeah which was one tough tough difficult job but somehow i kind of did okay and kind of progressed through that um, and was reasonably successful. I ended up in the mid twenties. Yeah, I was well paid. My career exploded. Then I got involved in all sorts of, all sorts of businesses. Man, I did everything. Um, lacked wisdom really, but had a go at everything. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot of learning that took place in those difficult years of trying to build businesses. Um, but it was all built on sand. And then as we approached the yeah, the early 90s, I was married, had two kids. That's when the things started to go seriously wrong and I really ended up in a in a very difficult place, yeah. Tell us a, a little bit about that. Yeah, um, I've tried to kind of work out, you know, what, what, what was wrong or what was the root of, of everything falling apart. Um, definitely something was missing inside me. Um, so I did earn good money. I did have big bonuses. I was successful from where I came from. I mean, all relative, but, you know, from where I'd come from. My first job was putting lids on paintings in a paint factory. So anyway, it was up. So I did reasonably well. Nice house, married two kids, nice car, holidays, but really not not contented, I think would be the best thing. So always something new, always something extra. Um, you know, I wasn't the, yeah, I wasn't the best husband I could have been to my first wife. Definitely not, and my daughters have been really insistent on this. I have to say, at the time, um, at the time, I wasn't, <clears throat> I wasn't the father my two young daughters deserved. Really, selfish. Said I did everything for the family, but really I didn't. I did it because I wanted to be successful and I wanted the wealth and I wanted all that kind of stuff. But really built on sand, really built on sand, and slowly began to, just began to fail. Really, I think that would be, but. As I failed, I tried something else and just scraped through, and then again and again. So I was just constantly trying to trying to think of something. And then in the early nineties, um, I mean, there's even one moment when you can kind of all came down to one moment. So I had an estate agency business, as you do, and I just sold it. And I knew that that sale would get me out of basically jail. Um, and on the morning of the completion, I got a phone call. They weren't going to do it, and that was the moment when I realised the game's up, and that's when I had a, yeah, about as near to a breakdown as I would ever want to get. I was actually, so my first wife and my eldest daughter kind of spotted me in a car park, kind of just laid out in the car, just completely numb, overwhelmed, banging on the door. So my daughter was banging on the window, "Daddy, Daddy, Daddy, are you okay?" And I was, I just knew it was all over. So, the guilt, the shame, watching my two little girls playing in the garden. 
knowing in my heart that I'd lost their home, knowing in my heart that really my marriage was over as well, huge debts, yeah, very, very, very grim. But obviously in the midst of that came the big change, you know. Tell us about how you became a Christian. Yeah. Okay, so imagine the scene. I'm falling apart at the scenes, marriage is failing, I know it's all it's all coming to an end. Um, and I met this guy called Paul. Um, and there was something about him, and he's a friend to this day, so I can speak about him. Um, first of all, he knew something was wrong before anybody else did. So he was the one who was aware. He asked me the questions, are you okay? So he could just tell all was not well. Behind the veneer, he knew all was not well. Uh, so he was part of the unlocking of me when he asked me these questions. And then as we lost you know, lost everything and ended up massively in debt, hounded by debt collectors and the whole thing just collapsed. Yeah, he was the one who stuck with me. So when people who should have stuck with me didn't, truth be known, all the people who I thought were friends, you know, when, you, when you're in debt and you're poor and you've made mistakes, the world is very cruel, very judgmental, and people just abandon me. And also, as you start to fall apart and have no money and struggling and loss of marriage and home and all that kind of stuff, you isolate yourself. I didn't want to talk to anybody about it. It was too painful. I knew what I'd done wrong. I could see the evidence, you know, watching my kids suffer, watching my marriage over, having to move house, you know, all that kind of stuff. But he was just, he never blinked. And to this day, he continues to be. And he just befriended me. And then he invited just the famous words. John, would you like to come to church? That was it. Just one question. And I remember going, church? Would I like to go to church? And then, what, what is it in you? Something was... I clearly recognise something in this guy, which I now see as a compassion of Christ. There's something about this person that clearly connected with me. He said, you want to come to church? So I went to church... 17 people in a little room and he preached and of course he preached to me he was talking about me he was talking about the hole that only Jesus can fill he was talking about um, living your life differently you know he was talking about the gospel of hope always hope and in that one service 26 years ago in a little little room in the outskirts of Bradford yeah I met Jesus Christ not only in a formal way of accepting as Christ my you know, my personal saviour, but actually inside something changed. Um, uh, it took a long time for that to work its way out and to have any evidence of the change. I, yeah, that's how I found Christ. And then he began what must have been one of the toughest jobs in Christianity, which was discipling me. I mean, I was all over the place. I was all over the place. Maybe that's why I've got a real understanding of newly saved people, you know, when somebody finds Christ on a Tuesday, you know, we want everything sorted out by Wednesday, midweek group by Thursday, church by Sunday. We want everybody sorted out within a few hours and days. And listen, if God wants to sort anybody out in a couple of hours, then you know what? I'm going to be cheering louder than anybody. But for me, it wasn't like that. For me, it was a it was a, a long journey, a very, very difficult journey of unpicking years of brokenness and unpicking years of selfishness and unpicking poor decisions. It was a long journey, but he never... This is Paul. Never left me. And also, of course, the hope that I got that day when I accepted Christ never went away and his grace and forgiveness and chance after chance after chance after chance 
began to began to change me and over a two-year period my wife says it's still ongoing by the way but certainly over the first two years it was pretty grim and then slowly but surely my life began to turn around so just to go back slightly because you say you know this was very much a journey for you and things didn't fall into place immediately in terms of your emotional and spiritual but also your financial situation Mm. stayed the same and in fact it got worse yes it did uh, because i faced it so that was really the key so I realised, having found faith, that I just could not come. It was untenable. I knew it was over. I couldn't fight it anymore. I couldn't fight it anymore. I couldn't borrow anymore. I couldn't think of anything else to do. I, you know, I just could not do anything. I just accepted. I'm done. I'm. I'm. I'm done. Um, and interestingly, even though it got worse, which it did, because it all became obvious to everybody. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't. I mean, everybody knew. Oh man, you, I mean, you couldn't help but know. You? The letters, the pile of letters on the on the doormat told you, and the letters, and the banks not and having no money and struggling, and it all became obvious. So it did get worse, but in a strange way, in a strange way, probably for me personally, um, I th- that was part of the key, really, because at least I was living real. So I was messed up. I'm living messed up. I'm struggling. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. But then interestingly, it was my entrepreneurial spirit and understanding of the finance industry, which, you know, if you've been, I've been in it for 13 years. I knew it inside out. But And also that entrepreneurial, whatever that is, that makes you think of a problem slightly different and think of a solution. It was those two together. So it was accepting the problem plus this hope that I had and then entrepreneurial so I couldn't get almost like it couldn't get any worse so whatever I did could only get better that's when I got this system together and that became the system that walked me personally out of debt over many years but it was that system bizarrely that then became the 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 foundation of CAP so it was a grim 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 few years so John in the middle of your own personal financial problems and beginning to be a Christian and dealing with everything that, that, that God was calling you to deal with. Yeah, you God spoke to you about starting yeah. a, a charity. Yeah, I'm sure everybody who's listening is going, seriously. Okay, um, first of all, one thing I, I need to, to put in the mix in the mix here is, um, so my wife Lizzie. So I met her kind of two years in uh, to my faith journey, and there's no doubt on two fronts. First of all, I suddenly have a re- had a really good reason to sort myself out. Amazing, amazing lady. I'm like, wow, get yourself together, Johnny boy. So that was very important. But also her kind of, the way that she sort of accepted me, um, understood everything. You know, I was the most, I was, was, we laugh now, but I was the, if there was an uneligible bachelor list, I would have been pretty high on the list. I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm getting divorced. I've got two young kids, nine and seven. I've got massive debt. I've got hardly any money. I'm not in great shape, but I know Christ. Hi, Lizzie. Anyway, um, her sort of accept. It was interesting. So her sort of acceptance of me, and rather bizarrely believing in me, which was nice. Um, I think those that combination was very very important so in the in the next two years so so by the time we started cap in 96 um those next two years once 
we got some really good things sort once I got some stuff sorted out. You know, it was pretty the turnaround was pretty pretty amazing. So that when we decided to get married in ninety six, I I was now running a, a secure lending division for a large PLC. I was earning good money, I was sort of my I was sorting, paying my debts off. I got my house back, I was sorted out with my first wife, I could provide for my kids. Um I was obviously I'd learnt the the gift of being generous as well so we lived a generous life so it really all looked amazing so we were about to get married in the july everything's going like i mean seriously if you ever want a perfect it was great and then i walked into work in march 26th of march 1996 walked into work and something just inside me just went it's over johnny boy you can't it's just over you can't do this anymore and i just knew straight away Oh my gosh, surely not now, God, not now. I'm getting married in 18 weeks. Please, please, please don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't ask me to help the poor like I said I would do. You know, we've all done the promises, haven't we? God, if you get me through this, I'll do anything. Well, I'd said that every night for three years. And then he did. And then, of course, wonderfully. He beautifully and graciously, uh, without any pressure, just reminded me and said, look, I think... And I didn't hear an audible voice. Let's keep it perspective. My spirit, something in me just went... I'm done with this. I don't need to do this anymore. I want to help the poor. And then, of course, I've got the problem. I've got to go home now to Lizzie. Uh, we're doing the seating plan for the wedding day. And I'm walking in, leaning over, going, Lizzie, I don't know how to tell you, but I believe God's told me I can't do my job anymore. I want to give my job up, walk away, and I want to help the poor. And where would you like to put Auntie Margaret Uncle Jack? Honestly, it was ever the wrong time to say something. We just knew God had asked us and we just were faithful. So, resigned, got married, came back from our honeymoon. Person gave me £10 from my first ever fundraising evening with six people who were gobsmacked and slightly scared where I shared the idea what I was going to do. Uh, £10, we started Christians Against Poverty in my home office. And at the beginning, John, you relied heavily on donations. All right, heavy on donations all the time, yes. But the church was actually quite slow to respond. Why do you think yeah, that was? I think, can I be honest, everybody was slow to respond. Um, I mean, yeah, we, people, many people will have read uh, Nevertheless, which is my life story that's available free uh, to anybody who wants it on the website. It's my diary. All, and, and, you know, you read the diary and, yeah, I mean... Yeah, I used to hear people who would start a ministry, you know, one week and then within a month they'd have lots of people supporting them financially and then everybody wants to work with them and within a year it's gone from nothing to something ours went from nothing to less than nothing i mean the first two years were unbelievably difficult i mean we ended up we ended up having to leave our home we ended up poorer than the clients we were helping we really struggled for anybody to take any notice of us i see god more in the no's often than in the yeses i really do and it's not it doesn't sound very spiritual but actually you know, if God had given us a million pounds the first week, which was my starting prayer, um, I'd have felt good for a, good for a few weeks. I'd say, well, that could have finished cap, because because we didn't have the financial resources, we had to really develop our faith. And everybody who joined us didn't join because they were going to get paid. We didn't get paid on time for thirteen years. I mean, that's how hard it was. You know, we threw our houses in at one point. I mean, it was unbelievably grim, but the faith that it built in us, the the strength of the organisation, the quality of the people that we brought, the leadership we learned, the reliance on God just was supersized in horrendous situations, horrendous difficulties. I mean, four months in arrears with our mortgage, our home is going to go, and we're still helping people in debt. I mean, the irony is not lost on me, but at the end of the day, I think sometimes we... 
again, I'm speaking from, I'm speaking retrospectively. I'm not suggesting I understood this at the time, but, you know, I read, people often would say to me, if God's in it, you'll have all you need. You know, that's quite a common thing. People say, well, if God's in it, you'll have all you need. And I'm, I used to be like, yeah, all you need, give me the money, give me the money. And then I read, you know, about the Apostle Paul. You know, I would say apart from, yeah, probably the most spirit-led man who's walked the face of the earth after Jesus. And he talks about, I know what it is to have plenty. And we all go, yay. He says, but I know what it is to be lack. I know what it is to be well-fed, yay. But I know what it is to be hungry. One thing, one thing I have learned is to be content in all circumstances, whether well-fed or hungry. I mean, that's that's not, you know, you don't see that on a fridge magnet. What we learn in those early years is has been the, the fruit we see now in the scale and size of our organisation and the 30,000 regular givers we have and the 75% regular, you know, the fun, the way we are, the way God has built it over 20-odd years, the people he's brought, it's it's breathtaking. And now we can help 20-odd thousand people, whereas we helped 20 in the first year. So, yeah, not a journey like other people. And by the way, if God wants to do it a different way, seriously, God is God, he can do it how he wants. But for us, it was very slow, very hard. But what we got out of it and what we now see because of it, retrospectively, is fantastic. And also... He gets all the glory, honour and praise, not us. He was the one who sustained us and he did give us everything we needed because we needed faith, we needed perseverance and we needed enough bottle to stand on his word and that's what we did. So, yeah, interesting and a challenging time. I can yeah. imagine. You speak in your book about some of the first employees that Cap had. Um, sometimes they were praying for their wages and sometimes for <laughs> they emailed their salary needs. Yeah. Did this feel uncomfortable to you as someone who was leading an organisation that dealt with debt relief? Yeah. Um, yeah, and Isaiah says, you know, stretch your ten curtains wide, strengthen your posts, you know, lengthen your cords. And then it says a little bit that for you will not be humiliated. Um, took me a long time to work that one out because I felt humiliated. So I got lots of letters from lots of people humiliating me all the time. Call yourself a charity. How can you possibly... You know, I got letters reminding me I had a wife and two children to support. Who was I? Um, more scriptures than you could ever imagine from people telling me what you're doing is wrong. You're an embarrassment to the Christian faith. Why are you doing this? This is not right. You're getting people to come and work for you and you can't afford to pay them. So, yeah, very difficult for us. Um, but two things sustained us. Um, number one, we knew we were about our father's business. We were saving people's lives. We were saving homes. We were seeing kids fed. We were seeing people drawn into church. We were people seeing people find Christ. We were seeing the church begin to outlive its mandate of being relevant in its community. We always had enough to eat. Never hungry. And we always had somewhere to stay, including once being offered a caravan when my wife was seven months pregnant. So we're talking that kind of grim reality. So God did provide for all we need because we needed steadfastness and we needed faith. He also provided in the people who joined me. No one joined CAP under any false presences. So I could look everybody in the eye, all the staff all the time. No one joined with any promise that they were all going to get paid. By the way, we set proper salaries and proper pensions and all that. We set up to pay people properly. And yeah, we had some difficult times. But we knew what we were doing. We were building sustainability and regular income. We were on it. We weren't. We were at it. We were working hard. And 
I think in a world sometimes where I find it a bit bizarre occasionally where so Jesus is the you know the creator of heaven and earth he is sovereign okay and it says his ways are higher than our ways okay so what so you know that's just really clear isn't it that that his ways are higher than your ways so your ways aren't always going to be the way so sometimes you've got to submit to ways that are different to your ways and not what you think and not how you expect it and God provided the faith and belief to do that and in the secret places in the quiet times when me and Lizzie were you know like I say when she was seven months pregnant and somebody offered us a caravan and we sat in a room and you know my wife just said John please don't let me have my first baby in a caravan and we both said well if that's what Jesus provides for us we'll but he didn't the next two weeks somebody rang up and we got given a four-bedroomed house and they gave us enough money to paint it and our daughter was born into a beautiful home. So, But it's not the traditional thing about God providing, but it is still God providing. Um, and in that, there is some great fruit now because he gets the glory and the honour and the praise, not us. We were just faithful and carried on with some amazing other people. You know, Matt and Josie Barlow joined me over 20 years ago, who's Matt's now the CEO and international director. What a, a world-class, amazing leader, but never mind that. What a young couple who stood with us, with others, on the front line, refusing to give up. It's priceless stuff. That brings us to the end of part one. Join us again to hear the rest of my interview with John Kirkby. Premier Christianity magazine, in this month's issue... Jesus died so you could be rich. Is the prosperity gospel a false gospel? Is TV's reality hit Love Island forbidden fruit or a wake-up call for Christians? And what happened when one woman set off to cycle the world and encountered God? Discover answers to these questions plus opinions, news and much more in the August issue of Premier Christianity magazine. For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Megan Cornwell. The Profile is brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine, the UK's leading Christian magazine. Today on the show, I'm talking to John Kirkby, the founder of the charity Christians Against Poverty. I caught up with him to hear more about his story. What advice would you give other Christians anxious to step out into the call of God, especially those with family? Uh, Be careful. I think it would be my first thing. I think, um, yeah, I, I, I get lots of people asking me this and I'm always a little bit conscious around my own testimony and the message it brings to people. So um, whatever you do, do it because you really do believe that God has called you to do it. Um, the truth is you'll find out whether he has down the road. You're never going to really know until you know. And I think it's okay as well. Um, sometimes I see people who who really really sincerely do things for Christ and and I think it's amazing but do you know it's okay if if, if you can't quite if, you, if it doesn't quite work out I think we often value success in different ways I think God values obedience above success he, he values heart above action he values your inner you know who you are as a person 
And I think there's great fruit in that. And not everything works. It doesn't always work. Things we've done haven't always worked. You know, it's not a guarantee. And I think for couples stepping out in faith, I would say you just need to make sure that what you're doing is 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 in line with his word and it will have local church involved and it will have evangelism and it will have a sense of God in it. And sometimes you don't find out who you are really until you put yourself in a position when you need to find out. And how exciting is that journey? So if you want an exciting, rip-roaring journey, then go and do it. But make sure as a couple, and this was mine and Liz's strength, we decided together. We made the decision. So when it got difficult and when I couldn't provide and when all the things happened, together we could look at each other. And also, for me, journaling, that's why, nevertheless, is such an amazing book. 200-odd thousand copies distributed for a lad who left school with no English qualification. I mean, God's irony is amazing. But in that book is the journal. So I can tell you how me and Lizzie felt on the 23rd of March, 1997 when our mortgage was three months in arrears, and I wrote down how me and Lizzie stood together with the word of God in in our life. So journaling reminded us what we said and reminded us what his promises are. And I think without journaling, our memory goes, and suddenly you're going to be tossed to and fro. So journal, make sure you're clear that you've both decided it. But also it is okay to have a red line. It is okay. It is okay. Everybody's got a red line. Ours happened to be just beyond. I think it must have been really close. But it was just beyond where we were. But other people, you know, if your red line is where your red line is, and that's okay. CAP is now partnering with hundreds of churches. So it seems Christians are waking up to the need for this ministry. Is that the end of the story? No, the story is just beginning. So, yeah, so so from the... From the just me in an office helping a few people in Bradford to people joining me, we opened our first centre three years in. Uh, by our 10th anniversary, we got to 50 debt centres, and then we've now got 600 centres. Um, but, you know, the end, yeah, we're nowhere near the end. So we not only do debt counselling now, which is over 300 centres in the UK doing debt counselling, but we also have our job clubs working with people who have been unemployed for a long time, CAP job clubs. We have CAP Fresh Start course which is helping people with addictions and dependencies we also have cap life skills helping with people living on a low income and we also have cap money helping people with money education so we now say that we you know help people in debt and poverty and its causes um so yeah the future for us is basically we're only ever going to be as good as a local church no church no christians against poverty that's just how it is that's where we are so we are literally responding to something that god is doing across the church in this nation which we are astonished by now has god used us a little bit to create some of the wave that's happening well who cares main thing is there's a wave happening people are waking up to the fact that churches should be making a difference in their community that we should be delivering world-class solutions we should have the answers in isaiah 58 in the message version it says you'll be known as a place that can fix anything really rebuilding communities making them livable again isaiah 58 uh, verse 11 you should be known as a place that should that can fix anything the church should be known as a place that can fix anything it should be a place that makes communities livable again that's the message that is the gospel so the church wonderfully and christians in their tens of thousands are getting involved in this stuff not just getting involved with cat but lots of other ministries that are following our lead um and for me our 
sense of evangelism at the core, our desire to pray with people, no church, no cap, we employ Christians, we are Christians against poverty, there's a clue in the title. I think that's just means there's so much more to go. So in the word it says, you know, it says more, much is expected to whom much has been given. Um, we spent, you know, we spent a lot of time trying to find out what God's given us and he's given us a lot. So come on then. So the bar is constantly raising for us in what we do and how we do it. And the opposition is constantly raising. But we are strong and able and equipped and covered and prayed for and resourced to stand up for the poor. So there's massive future, more centres, more influence. And the world is waking up to the fact that it does not know what to do. Read your newspapers, watch your telescreens. Now, we are a message of always hope. There is no family that is beyond the hope of Jesus Christ. There is nobody in debt that we can't help. Nobody who's been out of work. You know, hundreds of people finding jobs. A third of the people who come to our job clubs find work, and they've been out of work more than two years. So like 16 times more effective than any government-funded job creation scheme. Why? Because people change people. And that's what the church needs to be done. And then you bring Jesus into it. Bang. Every year, well over a thousand people find faith through our work. Every working day, five people find faith. It seems to me, John, that CAP is very good at pulling the bodies out of the river. What can you say about who's pushing the bodies into the river to begin with? Yeah, good question. And what's CAP doing about that? Very good question. Um, one that we have wrestled with um, and continue to wrestle with, although we think, we've re- we think we've won round one, so we're on our way. So, fundamentally, um, I'm a... I'm an activist. We are an activist. So so anybody wanting us to become a campaigning organisation, there's plenty of people have got a much better heart and much better knowledge to campaign than us. But what we have done is we've seen as our profile has riven, risen, particularly recently, almost by us, we're quite surprised by it, but we'll take it. We are now able to bring our weight to bear on key issues. So we have done some really good work with others to make some big changes. So working with others to get the interest rate you know, lim- limiting interest rates on payday lenders. We're right in there. The recent thing about making creditors have a six-week gap. We're right in there, and we believe that our influence, if it's going to really make a difference, has to be attached to relationship. So we are seen as a place where the entire finance industry come to cap to find out how to work with vulnerable clients. We are world leaders on how to deal with mental health. We are. renowned across the finance banking and collection industry as the place to learn how to look after vulnerable clients so our influence in some ways is soft but it's always got a bit of an hard edge but it's done through relationally and that's what we do so we are involved in we've done 11 consultations this year into various aspects of legislation and practice across dwp government Uh, we are we are in the rooms because we deserve to be in the rooms. We are listened to because we actually do. I remember sitting down with a a very senior cabinet minister and it was really interesting. So as we were talking, he was waiting for me to do one of two things, three things really. The first thing he wanted, he was waiting for me, was for me to tell him what to do. So I didn't do that. Second thing he was waiting for, he was waiting for me to want him to give me something to enable me to do something. Didn't ask for anything. And thirdly, he was waiting for me to ask for money. Well, I didn't know any of them. I just told him, A, what we're doing, B, that we're going to go and do it in a bigger version, and how can we cooperate with you to help people, and how can you help us help people? And the, res- the result was, was stunning and amazing. We are 
on YouGov websites. We have referrals that come in from all over the NHS. Why? Because Christians Against Poverty actually delivers phenomenal life-transforming work. And we do it in such a way as to gain professional recognition, FCA-regulated, um, Sunday Time is best company to work for twice, loads of stuff that we, that, that, that the world are saying that we're doing a good job. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with Christians need to do a good job. Where you're in sitting in these rooms of power and the halls of power, at the same time you have a very interesting model whereby you not only help people get out of debt, also evangelise and you're also very open about the yep. fact that you're a Christian organisation yep. and that you're still very much wanting to bring people to Christ. Yep. Has that ever caused you problems in secular yep. situations? Um, so let me be really clear with everybody. Okay, We help everybody, irrespective of any faith, any type of faith, any background or anything. So 95% of the people we help have absolutely no engagement with faith. Um, we have some really, really clear guidelines that really are recognised by everybody who works with us. So here's the bottom line. We will help you irrespective of any interest or any engagement whatsoever with anything to do with Christianity. So if you are in debt and you need help, we'll give you world-class debt counselling, free of charge, delivered excellently, through our centres. If you're out of work, through our job clubs, we'll give you a chance to get a job. The quality is unbelievable. So nothing we do is dependent on anybody's interest or response to faith. We are extremely sensitive and extremely strong in our training with all our staff that what we do is we as Christians, we are Christians against poverty. People expect us to be Christians because that's who we are. So they expect us to pray. So we, we offer, we ask our clients if it's okay for us to pray for them. We offer if there's anything you'd like us to pray for. Gently, in a really respectful way. And when 97% of clients say that your work is either life-transforming or amazing, and you get hundreds of people saying, thank you so much for offering to pray, then that speaks higher and stronger and louder than anybody who would be in any way concerned about us. And I think because we are Christians Against Poverty and we're not apologetic about it, but very clear that no one, you know, no one ever got forced into the kingdom of God. People get loved into the kingdom of God. No one was ever cajoled or sold any long-lasting life transformation through finding Christ. People are shown the love of God. And that's why I was shown 26 later. And that's our primary role. Let's show people the love of God. But let's not be embarrassed about the gospel. Let's not be ashamed of the gospel. We've nothing to be ashamed about. But let's do it really well with respect. And yeah, obviously we help 23,000 people a year. I think Martin Lewis recently said, um, he said, I don't really care whether they're Christians against poverty, Muslim against poverty, Jews against... It, it, I don't care who they are against poverty. Listen, these people do a phenomenal job and they should be encouraged for it. Yes, yeah. I saw that. I saw that um, yeah. recommendation, that yeah. phrase. It's yeah. Quite something. Yeah. And, yeah, so we are Christians. We work with churches. We believe in the power of prayer and we offer to pray with people. You know, I just like, it's okay, everybody. It's okay. It's really okay. Over the 20 years that you've been running CAP, would you say that poverty has got better or worse in the UK? Well, Deuteronomy says there'll always be poor in your land. So let's admit, it's a problem here to stay. 
I was speaking to our team recently about this, um, and these are the guys who are working with the thousands of clients and taking the thousands of incoming phone calls. So these are people really on the ground working with our clients. I think one thing that has changed is the um, vulnerability and the, the mental health well-being challenge. Um, as an organisation, we are investing millions of pounds Um we're able to give people, you know, home visits. We're able to work with them for years. We're able to pour vast amounts of resource of people into helping every single person if they need it. And, you know, our frontline workers, everybody involved is just saying, you know, there is there is some really, 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 really difficult things happening out there. And mental health is, is a huge aspect. Now, what comes first, chicken and the egg? I don't know. But, you know, I think when you when you look at where we are now in society... You know, if you've been out of work two years, no wonder you're not in good shape. You know, if if you can't feed your kids, no wonder you don't feel, you know, you're not going to be well. That's going to gnaw away at you. So we would say there's been an increase in vulnerability. In terms of has poverty increased, well, we've grown that vast that the number of people we help just continues to rise and rise and rise. So in some ways, we've seen more people every year, year on year. Um, I'm not sure it's risen. I think its its visibility has increased. I think that will be my, you know, there has always been people, I mean, trust me, when I started 20-odd years ago, I went into my first home. Man, you know, it was obvious Debbie couldn't feed her two kids and her home was going to be repossessed. That's poverty, and it was there then and it's here now. But I think its visibility has become, you know, it's more visible, and I think that's a good thing. But it's only a good thing if it drives action, Um you know, I don't think it's a spectacle to be used for any political advantage. I don't think it's something that should be used, you know, for personal advancement. It's basically really sad, but it should. And I think it has been part of the wake-up call to the church, you know, to get off its blessed backside and flipping do something to help the poor. So whether it's increased or not, uh, the stats say it has mental illness, vulnerability through the roof, uh, and we just continue to grow as fast as we can to meet the need, but we're never going to meet the whole need. If you were to say one th- one main thing that Christians could do to yep. get involved, yep. to make a difference in this area yep. of poverty reduction, yep. what would you would what would be your one main piece of advice? Get your heart right. Read your Bible, because as the heart is, the mouth speaks. As a woman thinks, so he or she is just really clear things that everything flows from the heart so if you've been listening to this and you're just thinking about judging poor people and you think that it's all their fault go get your heart sorted out should have been with me with two kids at a checkout in a supermarket with people tutting at me because i couldn't afford everything that went through the trolley you should have been with me and lizzie when we had to break into the 14 pound we'd saved up for our daughter's birthday so that we could eat for a week sat down with some of these single parents who are considering selling themselves on the street because they can't feed the kids. So get your heart sorted out with compassion and there but for the grace of God go I. Get your heart right towards poor and needy people. Start thinking of what it must be like. They're just like you. They love their children like you do. They care for their husbands and wives like you do. They're they're the same as you. So my number one thing to everybody will be to your heart. Get your heart right. Have some compassion. If someone's made some mistakes, the last thing they need you to do is judge them like everybody else. So if you can get your heart open to the gospel, to God's compassion and grace, then from that will flow two things. Number one, 
you'll begin to speak and you'll be able to be compassionate and caring and then your actions will follow your mind and yeah get involved in something get involved in the many things you can do as a church to make sure that if your church shut people in your community notice you'd shut not just the people who come on Sunday so for me everything flows from the heart so the one thing you didn't ask me for the one thing the one thing is just allow God's spirit to get rid of that judgment and start loving and caring for people and the rest will follow and of course yeah we'd love to hear from you because we've got a lot to do and we're willing to work with anybody we can but first of all the heart cap has grown phenomenally over the years you've gone from a uk-based charity in bradford to an international <laughs> organization with offices in australia <laughs> yeah how did that happen yeah <laughs> what do the next 10 years look like for you and for yeah. cap well you know i think you know let's let's be excited more of the same will do me great so let's carry on doing what we're doing if you know what's got you this far what's got us this far is really caring about the poor and having things that really work and empowering inspiring people to get get involved so more of that is just has to be you know i think yeah i'm all for new stuff but you know if you've got something that's working just do it more is, is so we are on that obviously the bigger you get the harder it is to grow and all that kind of stuff but just more we'll do more that's fantastic so we'll carry on trying to do better more stronger bigger all the time um and that's okay um with our new services with the effects of poverty so long-term unemployment uh, fresh start for addictions and life skills you know they have a long way to go you know we could see you could see hundreds of those we already have well over 100 job clubs but you could see hundreds and hundreds of them so there's a big expansion there so carry on doing all that um in terms of for for us internationally um you know we're very we're very cautious about opening new countries because we know how much it takes I, I was international director for 18 years so i know what it is to you know, to change a country and to get involved. So we're very cautious about that, but we are continuing to be open to, you know, international expansion, but it won't be anything too dramatic. It'll just be in the right place, right time, right people. Um, for me personally, um, I'm, yeah, again, amazed. It just somehow seems I've been um, given a little bit, you know, more sort of openness to speak on sort of wider issues um, of leadership and of life so i'm busily being very excited about god opening up opportunities for me to speak on perhaps some wider issues um so we're looking at you know what will be my essential uh life lessons and what would be my essential leadership lessons that i've picked up over yeah all these years um for me and lizzie um we've got three kids plus my two eldest daughters we've got three grandkids now so we're very excited uh, seeing our family grow up in faith and seeing our local church continue to do well we actually were part of a team who planted a church 10 years ago in our spare time um, so we want to see the church continue to grow in our home city we want to be part of that and yeah I've learned over the years that as I said a little bit earlier the number one thing if you get that right everything flows from it so I'm determined we're determined me and Lizzie to make sure our heart remains for others to have a compassion for the poor, to be in awe of God and to be open whatever he has for us. And I think we're just creating a little bit of space to see what he might do. But I'm excited about the future. Um, and when anybody ever says, which they often do, they'll send me emails about, you know, you can't do this, you can't do that. I've lived in one room with two kids on a camp bed and I've been unable to feed them. Nobody can tell me what God can't do. On that note... Thank you, John. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. It's been great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Megan Cornwell. The Profile is brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine.
For a free sample copy of our latest issue, visit premierchristianity.com slash free sample. That's all we've got time for today, but if you want to hear past episodes, you can download the profile as a podcast. Just visit premierchristianradio.com slash the profile. Coming up next is Premier Playback. <laughs>